On today's Talk Neurotopy podcast, I'm joined by Dr. Jessica Lochran and Dr. Mike T. Nelson, and we're going to be discussing bringing clinical neuroscience research into your practice, the good, the bad, and the ugly. We hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Talk Neuro to Me podcast. My name is Dr. Freddie Garcia. And this is Dr. Jessica Lofgren. And today we're going to be joined by Dr. Mike T. Nelson, and we're going to be discussing bringing research into your clinical practice, the good, bad, and the ugly. Uh, Dr. Mike T. Nelson is actually a personal friend of mine, but also a brilliant, brilliant guy. He has a PhD in exercise physiology from the University of Minnesota, also has his BA in natural science. Um, he's also got a master's in bio, uh, biomechanics. Right, so as if he doesn't study enough, he's an adjunct professor in human performance with the Carrick Institute. He's an adjunct professor uh, with the American College of Sports Medicine. Uh, he's an instructor at a university, Broadview University, um, and also holds many decorations from the NSCA, from nutrition. I mean, he is he is just a brilliant, brilliant guy. In fact, when I have complicated questions, he is one of the guys that I go to. Uh, Dr. Mike, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me here. Greatly appreciate it. I love having you on. Mike, we're going to be talking a lot about research. And um, gosh, I mean, this is just something that we need to know. As clinicians, people don't seem to occasionally value enough the research. And I know right now everything's all about the evidence-based model. And uh, and they talk about it, but, you know, there's an issue. Not enough people are doing research. And the other issue is that not enough people are really understanding research. So I said, you know what? Let me bring on one of my smart friends and let's talk about this stuff. Let's give them a little education so that the research isn't so scary and they can actually incorporate this into the decisions that that's they're making. So that's that's the plan. How's that sound for everybody today? Sounds good. All right. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, Happy to help. Dr. Mike, there are levels to research. Can If I wanted the primer on those levels, what are we really looking at? Because it, I don't know about you guys, but I'm like overwhelmed. When you when I look up a topic, it like you can get lost in the weeds really quickly. And, and then and then like 45 minutes later, I'm like, what are, what am I, what, where did my search start? Yep. Right, like am I, am I the only one that that happens to? I feel, I feel like it happens every other day for me. I'm like, I start one way and I'm like, I end up in the weeds and, and then, I, then I have to like pull myself back out and try to make sense of everything in front of me. So. When it comes to levels of research, where can we, can you kind of teach us a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, I agree. There's just, I mean, the amount of research that's being published every day is exponential, which is a good thing, which is moving progress, moving everything forward. Uh, The downside, as you mentioned, is it can be overwhelming, especially if you're not really trained in a background to sift through the different levels of research to try to figure out you know, this study versus that study, you know, how do they compare? And everyone kind of goes through this. I mean, I pulled my Evernote file and I've got 331 studies in my to read file for full length studies. So it's a never ending process. Yeah, that's just one Sunday Sunday afternoon. You can bang that out real quick. Yeah, maybe a couple of Sundays and a lot more coffee, but it's, it's slowly going I wouldn't say it's going down because I keep adding stuff to it, but, you know, moving forward at least. (laughs) Um, And there's different levels of evidence. So the one that I generally use, this is from John Hopkins, what's called evidence-based practice. And they rate the levels of evidence from level one through level five. And level one is the highest level of evidence. And then level five is the lowest level of evidence. So if you're listening and you 
know what the different levels of evidence are, then you can try to say, oh, okay, I'm going to kind of wait. This study was a level one study. So I'm going to wait that obviously more than this, which was a level five. So kind of at the, the bottom, which is just a good starting point, is considered level five. And this is based on more experiential and kind of non-research evidence. So this includes things like uh, case reports, right? Because it's usually just a very small number. Uh, this also includes expert opinion. So even if someone is an expert in their field and they're not necessarily quoting any research, they're just saying in their opinion or what they believe is true, well, that's considered a level five. Um, in this, you have some literature reviews also. So that's kind of at the, the base of the pyramid. And again, that doesn't mean that this data is worthless. It just means that it's at a lower level compared to the levels as we go up. Mike, if I could interact, interject, you know, yeah. I, I value you saying that it's not worthless because sometimes I'll be talking with clinicians and I feel like they completely dismiss case reports. And, and, and in my sure. mind, I'm thinking, hold on one second. If there wasn't a case report one day, then there, they may not be a meta-analysis for something five years later. So it has to start somewhere. But it doesn't mean that you only look at a case report and say, well, this is the answer, right? Like, I totally get that portion of it. So in my mind, I'm going, I, I see the case report uh, as important. You know, I see the expert opinion as important, even though it may be only a level five. A am I crazy to think that? No, I agree. Because we have to look at this not just in isolation, so we have to look at this in view of what is the available data. So if you're trying to compare something that's, say, just a case report, but there's a lot of you know level one randomized controlled trials, the very high level of evidence, yeah, that case report, probably not that useful. However, if there's a case report on something where there really just isn't much other data at that point, that's probably a lot more useful. Right. Because you're like, well, before we didn't have this case report. Now we have this case report. Maybe in the future we'll have three or four different case reports on something that's similar. So for people who are looking to do research, then they can go back and look and go, oh, hey, there's three case reports on this thing here. Maybe we should do a little bit more of a controlled experiment on it. Right. So I always think of it. It's depend on the context. So what are you comparing it to? What is the level of current data? So if you don't have much data, level five is actually pretty good. If you have a ton of data, especially level one and level two, you know, case reports aren't as useful. So I think it depends on the context. And then it also depends upon the, we should rephrase that, that it depends upon how you view it. Because if there was no case reports, it's hard to build on anything from there, right? So I think of case reports as kind of like the first first step. Like, and like when planting you a have seed. more case reports, yeah, when you have more of them, then that kind of signals to other researchers and people in the field that, hey, we've seen this thing. It's been at least repeated a couple times. Yeah, it's only a case report, but that probably merits looking at it a little bit closer compared to the thousands of other things we could pick from that we don't have any case reports on. So it kind of is a level up and kind of gives you a way to start to get into more formal research from that point. Awesome. I dig it. So what's, what's the next level? Tell me about that. Yeah. So the next level is level four. 
So this is the opinion of respected authorities and our nationally recognized expert committee, consensus panels. And this, the difference here is that this is actually based on scientific evidence. So these include a lot of consensus panels from different groups and a lot of clinical practice guidelines. So I think a lot of times people uh, view these because they are citing a fair amount of scientific evidence. Most of the time people tend to view these probably higher than where they actually rank. Because we have to keep in mind that even though they are synthesizing some evidence, there's usually a little bit more bias in, I would say, this level uh, compared to the other levels above it. Um, however, we're still aggregating more actual published research. So this would be a level four compared to a level five. Let, let me ask you a question. And when it yeah. comes to these uh, panels or consensus panels, um, Dr. Jessica, it makes me think of uh, what's the one that they do for traumatic brain injuries every year? They actually had to skip their yearly oh, meeting. The, it's uh, like um, American Brain Foundation. Is that no, what you're looking at? No, it's a uh, gosh. It's, it'll come to me like the moment we get off Skype, Mike. That's a, that's exactly. You'll what's think of happen. it. I was wondering also what panels are often the ones that everyone's looking at. Like, what are the ones that people are usually going to to get that kind of information? Actually, that's a great question. Where do these panels come from? So any group can really put together a panel, which is why a lot of times it's ranked a little bit lower. So if you know, I was with, let's say, ACSM or some other organization related exercise, and they have, you know, various consensus statements that they can put together, which is sort of their view of what the literature says. The hard part is that most groups tend to be subtopic and by definition a little bit more niched and therefore a little bit more biased. So you may have, you know, if you look at exercise like, you know, the Cooper Foundation. Well, they started by doing aerobic training. So they're probably going to be a little bit more biased towards aerobic training. That doesn't mean that there's not good data there or that they're not citing good data. A lot of times I view the, the panel and some of the guidelines as what are the things that they're kind of omitting from it. Not necessarily the data or what they're presenting is, is bad or invalid. It's just sometimes how I view it is it's not maybe as comprehensive as what it could be. Right. So there's a lot of bias there. So essentially, us three, we could get together and we could create a panel and we could just share sure. what we find interesting and the research that we find relevant to us. So really that I guess I see where that puts it more at like a level four rather than up towards the one. I'd be curious on all these individual panels is how much I'm sure they're all looking at the evidence and they're aggregating it. But at the same time, I'd be curious to see how much they're willing to reach because you sure you're going to say, hey, this is what we know really, really well. And this is what we don't know, right? If they're up front about it, I'm sure they're saying, hey, this is what we don't know really well, but this may be what you should do mm -hmm. depending on the individual case because you can't always just only limit yourself to what's in the literature because you'll find yourself, I, I imagine you find yourself just stifled or almost kind of like yeah, handcuffed because it because the, 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 the literature doesn't cover everything. That would be an amazing world, but we, I mean, it's we're always kind of trailing, right? Like the doers in some ways are ahead of what the literature is to some degree but a majority yeah, I mean, of, what the, of what the doers should be doing should be from the literature yeah i always think of it as from an individual level there's what i call research and me search right so if i just as an individual if i just take myself as an n of one just for the sake of simplicity i can read a lot of the research 
and that can give me some ideas about what's going on and maybe different principles. The groups may not necessarily be the same demographics and the same match as to what I am. But then I can set up what I would consider my own me search of an N of one, or you could do it with a, a group of practice or, you know, with your clients or however you want to set it up, um, your patients that, okay, I looked at all the research. Hmm. I think we should try this thing. And then you can do your own little experiment of before and after and collect your own data or sort of your own me search. And then if you want, then you can start publishing that as, hey, we found this thing is pretty cool. We're going to do a case report, which is a level five of, you know, five patients and what their outcomes were related to TBI and lasers or whatever, right? Whatever your intervention is, right? So then you can still use the research because that's going to inform where you're going to start. Ah, it looks like this thing here is pretty efficacious. Hmm. Let's do some of our own work and see, does that help? Oh, wow. That's pretty cool. We found that this thing did help. So now we can then work to start adding to the literature initially by doing a case report. Maybe we do a literature review on the topic and then, you know, as everything progresses, you can progress up to different levels from there. Now, what I'm curious about, though, is right now, um, say we're looking at everything happening with coronavirus and with COVID-19 and all the data that's being released there. Would the information, say, from a recognized committee or panel such as the CDC, would that be considered a level four? Or would they be higher because they have more of a government influence? Or where would they stand on this? Is, is that further up or is their information maybe a little biased as well? Yeah, part of that depends upon what data they're pulling from. So for level four is just very loosely, I guess you could say, organized, right? So if you get into, if we skip ahead, right? So if we just skip way ahead to, say, level one, right? So level one is what's considered an experimental study or randomized controlled trial, what's called a systematic review of randomized controlled trials. So when you're doing a systematic review of RCTs, by definition, the only data you are looking at is data from randomized controlled trials. And this can be done what's called with or without a meta-analysis. So meta-analysis is we're going to try to aggregate all of this data. We're going to try to pool it together and see if we can reach some conclusion. And by definition of doing a meta-analysis, there's different ways using statistics um, to do that. If you're looking at something more of a consensus panel, it could literally be one person going out and saying, hmm, here's a bunch of scientific data and including stuff that's not all randomized controlled trials, could be different forms of data. They're trying to get their arms around it and pull it all together and say, ah, this is what I think is going on. So here's our consensus, right? So they're it's not for a consensus, it's not necessarily as uh, strict. You're not going in, you're not pulling uh, only randomized controlled trials. You're not trying to pool all the aggregate data from each one using different types of statistics to make sure what you're seeing is an actual real thing. You're just looking at all this data and going, yeah, I think this is, this is the thing that's going on over here. Got it, okay, that makes a lot more sense that way too. So let's talk about the next level. So what is level three on this evidence level of research? Yeah. So level three is considered non-experimental studies. So again, this could be a systematic review that could include some randomized controlled trials, 
are what's called quasi-experimental or non-experimental studies. Again, this may or may not include meta-analyses. Uh, this can also include qualitative studies, right? So a lot of times when we think study, we only think quantitative. Can we assign and put little numbers on it? Um, but there's a lot of work that goes into creating qualitative um, studies, which is a whole different uh, methodology that goes into that. And again, this can also include some types of systematic reviews. So it's a little bit higher than level four, obviously, um, but we're not necessarily only looking at uh, randomized, controlled, highly, I'd say, maybe controlled, I guess is a better word, studies. So we're including some other experimental work, um, but we're not quite at the level of only doing a randomized controlled trial, where we're really trying to only manipulate this one particular variable and see what happens with it. And then you would have a level two, which is considered kind of quasi-experimental studies. This can be a systematic review, which can include a combination of randomized controlled trials or quasi-experimental studies. And again, this could include with or without meta-analyses. So we're trying to get a little bit closer to kind of the level one or the quote-unquote gold standard, uh, which is gonna be experimental studies, randomized controlled trials, right? So we're really trying to pin this mechanism down to one particular thing. Normally when people think of level one or randomized controlled trials, the easy one to think of is uh, pharmaceutical drug trials because we have this one particular compound, we're comparing it to this other compound, which is just usually a placebo a lot of times. Uh, for pharmaceutical drugs, the requirement by the FDA is they have to be compared against a placebo. So the patients or the people in the trial don't know which is which. And for the drug to get approved, it has to show that it is better than just the placebo. But it's only this one thing that we're looking at for this set of outcomes. Got it. So as a review for everyone, can you go over those five, just the names of each level of research, just as a review before we move on? Yep. So level five is based on experiential or just non-research-based evidence. Right. So a lot of times this is sort of just professional opinions in a few case reports. Level four is a little bit higher, so it's based still on the opinion of respected authorities or nationally recognized expert committees and consensus panels. So this includes a lot of clinical practice guidelines and consensus panels themselves. So level three is considered non-experiential data. So again, this can include some types of systematic reviews, what's called quasi-experimental, and this includes also qualitative uh, studies. Level two is considered quasi-experimental studies. Again, this can include systematic reviews or combination of randomized controlled trials, and this may or may not include a meta-analysis. And when you get all the way up to level one, and again, if you look at different evidence-based practices, they'll split these out a little bit different, but uh, level one is generally considered experimental studies. It's called a randomized controlled trial, RCT. And then if we take a bunch of those RCTs and put them and pool them together, we can create an either a systematic review, which is kind of more of, I lack of a better word, a story of how all these fit together, 
or we can become even a little bit more formal and do something called a meta-analysis. So we have our little inclusion criteria. We looked at all these randomized controlled studies. Aha, these 11 met the inclusion criteria for the thing we're looking at. And then we're gonna try to pool all the data from these 11 trials and then run some more statistics on it and see what we find. So that would be considered a meta-analysis. Okay, thank you for that review. So we have neuroscience research update coming up here towards the end of the year. And I know you're doing one of those courses or you're teaching one of those courses for us. Are you pulling from a certain level of research for this class or is there one level that you're favoring over the other? Yeah, so the, the big thing we wanted to do with this is help educate uh, doctors on the research itself. So as we talked about at the beginning of the program, there is just a massive amount of research that's coming out. And it's very hard to stay on top of it. Plus, try to figure out what level it's at. And then the other part, which we touched on briefly, is at the end of the day, what is it that the the physician or the doctor is going to do about that actual data? So this is, gets into what's called an evidence-based practice model. Actually, uh, perfect, Dr. Mike. That's actually because you mentioned it before, and I'm sorry to interrupt you, yeah. but you mentioned the evidence-based practice. And, you know, again, another term that's thrown around a lot, and we've talked about this, and you, you actually call it the evidence-led practice. Sure. Um, I want to ask you, why do you call it that? And can, you, can we kind of break down what people are talking about when they talk about the evidence-based practice or the evidence-led practice? Uh, so first, why do you call it the evidence-led practice? What's the deal with that? And what are the components of an evidence based practice. I'm doing air quotes if everybody can't feel me from, you know, through your yeah. podcast your headphones here. <laughs> yeah, it's just terminology because and this is my pet peeve as a PhD, not necessarily a practitioner in in this world per se. It's very easy I think to be stuck in a rut by only doing air quotes evidence-based practice. So a lot of times I think this gets misinterpreted as, oh my God, there wasn't 17 randomized controlled trials on it, therefore you shouldn't be doing X, Y, or Z, right? Um, I like evidence-led because it means that, hey, you know, I'm a smart monkey, I'm gonna go out, I'm gonna look at the research, I'm gonna read it, I'm gonna understand it, and I'm gonna try my best to apply that research to the real world, but the reality is if I'm working as a practitioner, I am paid, by the results that I get. And we all know that the research itself is limited, especially if you're on you know, sort of the bleeding edge of what's going on. So that means you're still looking at the research, you're spending time to understand it, to know the limits, the pros, the cons, but you're not necessarily handcuffed by only doing things because there's a randomized controlled trial on it. Um, and then if you look at what are the different models of evidence-based practice, uh, there's different ones. Uh, my bias, the one I like, is from Sackett's, which is from 1992. And imagine you're drawing three circles, right? So you've got one circle that's research evidence. Okay, what is in the data? What level is the data? What did they look at? Another circle, you've got your clinical experience. So what are you seeing in your clinic? What do you see day to day for your particular data? And then you've got a third circle, which is the patient and especially the context of what you're looking at. So you have these three circles. You've got research, 
clinical experience, and then patient with context. And if you imagine drawing a Venn diagram of all these three circles, the intersection of all of them is your clinical decision. So you're taking into account all three of these to reach what you believe at that particular time with your expertise, with what's going on with the patient and their context, and what is the current state of the research, you're coming to what you believe is the best clinical decision. And to me, that is the merging of both the science and the art. You know, in a perfect world, everything would be a science, right? We would have all the data on anything we possibly wanted to figure out, and it would be a lot easier. But the reality is we're not anywhere close to that either. So we're still using research, you're still using your clinical experience, and you're still taking into account what the patient and their context is, and you're coming to the best answer from all of those. Perfect. That's a great explanation. Um, let me do have a follow-up question. So you mentioned the art, right? Because we're, we're depending on science, we're depending on the, uh, the, the clinician's experience and intuition, and then, of course, taking into account the patient's desires, which... You know, sometimes you hear horror stories of that not being accounted for, you know. Uh, so I'm glad that Definitely. you, you – Yeah, you, I'm glad you laid it out that way. What, where does a clinician – when are they allowed to exceed or do more than there's evidence for? Because there's that soft area, that art, right? Like what are the guidelines for them being like, hey, I'm willing – as long as your patient's okay with the risks and what we're doing, I think we should potentially do A – or B, sure. You know, it's like where, where, how far can we go with the art of it? I, I guess is what I'm saying. It's an interesting scenario. Yeah. Does that question make sense? Yeah, totally. Um, to me, and my bias and my framework is you're looking for what's called an asymmetric risk profile, risk to benefit, right? So you're going to try to minimize the downside as best you can. Right, because everything has a risk and everything has a reward. So if we don't know exactly what the outcome is, so an example would be the supplement, which was from the sports world, a creatine monohydrate. Oh, love me, love me, love me some creatine. Love me some creatine. Yeah, uh, it's been around for quite a while, but there's some pretty interesting emerging data uh, related to TBI and the use of creatine, also its use of maybe some other neurologic disorders. So we don't have a ton of research evidence right now, especially if we look at, say, TBI. However, if we're looking at the use of creatine as an intervention, the question then is, okay, hmm, we don't have a ton of research as it relates to TBI. Okay, so we don't really know what the potential upside is. Right now, it's just kind of a big question mark. Could be amazing, could do nothing. And the question then is, well, what is the downside? Aha, well, the good part with creatine is we've got a ton of data on it. Last time I checked, there's almost 500 peer-reviewed studies in PubMed on creatine monohydrate as a supplement. And virtually almost all of it shows that in reasonable doses, it's very safe relatively inexpensive, there really isn't much of a downside related to it. So again, if I was a practitioner, I would think, okay, hmm, don't know what the upside is, but the downside we have pretty well defined. We know that it appears to be very safe. There's a ton of research on it, more so than almost any other compound, especially in the supplemental world, other than a few other things. So I would feel pretty safe that 
I don't know the exact outcome. I don't know how much it may help. Maybe it doesn't do anything. But I feel pretty confident that I'm not going to increase the risk any worse than what it probably is. Now, again, there's always some risk. You're not going to be able to mitigate that to absolute zero because you're dealing with a different condition or pathology. Mm-hmm. But compared to a compound that's, say, very new, that we have almost no data on, now you're stuck with, huh, I don't know what the outcome of this is. Ooh, I don't really know what the downside is either. So to me, that would be more of a risk. And this is in the area where we just don't have a lot of data for a particular instance. Okay, no, I I, I get it. I got it. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, you know, that's part of the tightrope walking that we do as clinicians, right? Trying to figure out what to do and, and weighing in the benefits and the results or the benefits and the risks. The risks and the rewards. Yeah. Right. And right. one other thing to, to add on that, too, is that a lot of people from the outside, not necessarily people who work in this world, would look and say, well, hey, you need to do more studies on TBI and creatine. I, you just told me that the you know the highest level of evidence is a randomized controlled trial. How come I don't see randomized controlled trials on creatine related to TBI? And but when you stop and think about it, you're like, okay, well, what would that look like? And they have done this with mice. So in mice, they took a group. And they said, hey, we're going to give you mice over here creatine. You mice over here, we're not going to give you creatine, right? So we've got our two groups: creatine intervention, no intervention. And then we're going to thwack you mice on the head and give you a TBI. <laughs> and then we're going to see which group of the mice got better. Right? That would be a very by-the-book, randomized, controlled trial. And, of course, you can see why this is not going to probably happen in humans anytime soon. No IRB board on the face of the earth is going to approve that study. So by virtue of some study designs, especially as you get into humans and even sometimes in animals, because we still have to do things that are ethical in animals, which is approved by a different board, usually called IACUC, um, we have limits of what we can actually expect to ever get out of the research, right? So it's kind of unrealistic to expect to have this randomized, you know, forward-looking controlled trial with creatine and, say, TBI. All right, so we may have lower level of evidence, right? Maybe we look at you know, football players who happen to take creatine and reduction of TBI compared to a group that doesn't, even though that would be more of a retrospective type study. So again, we have to be realistic of what we would expect a study to look like and if such a study could even ever be conducted. Right, because I'm not volunteering for that uh, TBI study where no. they're going to take up uh, the... <laughs> Um, you know, but this brings up the next question. So here's a scenario I always think about, right? Like you take something that can be very complex, like back pain, right? You, you think back pain simple and it's, yeah. it's really not. And you go, oh, my back hurts here. And you want to test out the, the newest, um, the newest um, say, treatment, right? Let's say it's a manual therapy or whatever it is. And you go, all right, I, I'm going to gather, we're going to gather 100 people or whatever many people I need for statistical validity. Let's study this manual therapy for back pain. Um, and you could do the study and you do the manual therapy and you say, oh, it doesn't yield the result that I wanted it to, or maybe, or maybe it does. But when you look at something as complex as back pain, I always wonder, okay, well, how are they qualifying these people? Do the person just have to have back pain? It, it hurts here. Ouch. You know, or is it, I, I hurt here and I also have, you know, this level of job satisfaction and this level of, 
uh, anxiety or depression or uh, this frequency of firing of my left cerebellum when compared to my right cerebellum. Or I have, um, you know, uh, uh, people that have peripheral vestibular disorders on the left side versus the right side versus a centrally maintained vestibulopathy, all different types of vestibular disorders that you can find. So I, I just find there's so much variability in an individual from a mechanical perspective, a neurobiomechanical perspective, a neurological perspective. How can you do a study on something like back pain and a therapy and really control everything? Do you know what I'm saying? Like it, it just yeah. becomes infinitely complex and I worry about how we're ever going to get to the point where we're getting good data. Because I look at some studies and I go, well, that's interesting, but did they look at it from this perspective? And the answer is kind of like, no, we didn't. That may have mattered, but they didn't look, so you just kind of don't know. And I think sometimes we throw things out because we didn't look at them through an appropriate lens, if I could say it that way. Yeah, there's a bunch of things that go into that, and science is a very slow, stepwise process and probably never goes as fast as we want it to. Um, how I view that is you can kind of drop them into two categories. So the first category I have is more in the black box area of does XYZ work, right? So in this case, does our new whiz-bang manual therapy technique for back pain, which I'm using in air quotes here, <laughs> does it improve an outcome? Which the outcome here could be as simple as yeah, do you have less back pain, right? And I think a lot of times we tend to skip this one because it doesn't seem very sexy. But at the end of the day, you want to know, hey, does this thing seem to move the needle? Does it have any effect, right? So I call it kind of the does it work? And we're kind of just putting something into a black box. Hey, we put an input. We put it in the black box. Black box does a whole bunch of complex stuff. Ooh, here comes an outcome. Oh, wow. It looks like this new whiz-bang manual therapy technique. Wow, it did reduce perception of back pain by 40%. That's kind of cool. That would be something probably worth studying further. And to your question and your point, the next thing then gets into more of mechanistic research. Okay, we have our new whiz-bang manual technique. We've shown it reduces the perception of back pain by 40%. The next question is, well, how does it do that? Right, assuming that that could be replicated, and that is in air quotes, quote unquote, a true result. Most of the time with science, we're just proving stuff that doesn't work. Right, a buddy of mine, Pat Davidson, said, "You're just like knocking down bowling pins." Right, you never really prove anything is true. You just try to show, "Nope, that didn't work. That didn't work. That didn't work." <laughs> right, and you're kind of left with, "Ooh, maybe that thing works," because we can't really disprove it yet. Um, but you're looking at mechanistic research. And that's a whole nother ball of wax because that could be, you know, like the different therapies you mentioned, you could be dealing with subcategories of different reasons that people had back pain, right? So maybe you need to do a more specific study. We're going to take people who have a self-reported back pain, who have this, you know, left cerebellar issue of whatever, and we're going to zap them with a laser and see what happens, right? So you become more and more smaller, and then you could even spin that off and look at, you know, animal models and different more mechanistic type stuff. And that cascade is almost never ending, right? Because whenever we try to look smaller, we find smaller stuff all the time, right? You could get down to, you know, different biochemical things, different changes in neurons, you know, all sorts of stuff. And to your point is, how much are we actually going to control? 
So at a high level, you have what's called internal and, and external validity. I can do something that has a very high amount of control, but that may not relate to the real world, right? So if you look at diet and nutrition, this comes up all the time. Hey, I lock people in this metabolic chamber. I keep track of all the energy that goes in, the air that goes in and out, and I can tell you exactly how many calories they ate and how many calories they burned. That's kind of cool to figure out mechanistically what may be going on. But of course, people don't live in a metabolic chamber, right? They live in the real world and they've got all these other inputs that could potentially affect them. The flip side is if I do a study where they just come into the lab, let's say once in the morning, I do some measurements, we do a little intervention and they kind of leave and go off on their merry way, who knows what they could be doing? They could be doing all sorts of other stuff, right? Uh, but that design has a high external validity, meaning that do we still see an effect from this thing that we're doing, even though these humans are allowed to just roam around in the real world? However, we probably won't be able to get very mechanistic with it. Um, if we lock them up in a metabolic chamber, yeah, we could probably get some more cool mechanistic data. But again, that doesn't look anything like the real world either. So I think when you design an experiment, I think you have to be very clear about what is your goal. Like what is the question you are trying to solve? And by definition of doing one particular thing, <clears throat> it means you can't do the other thing, right? And so all the time, researchers kind of have to make these decisions of, I'm gonna go down this path here, and by uh, these set of experimental conditions and constraints, this is the question that I'm gonna try to answer. And then of course you have issues of replication, right? So a lot of studies, you'll find some amazing results in many times this is not really replicated. And that gets into the whole academia set up not necessarily with replication in mind. Um, I spent two and a half years farmed out to the epi department to find a result that basically said, oh, the thing we thought was gonna happen didn't happen. And lo and behold, they're like, well, we're not gonna publish it. I'm like, what? <laughs> they're like, hmm. well, it's not new and novel, it's not sexy. I'm like, well, I don't care, it's, this is what we found, right? The data is the data, this is the thing that we found. And they were like, well, it's not sexy, no journals are interested. And it actually never got published. <laughs> Which to me is crazy, um, but so you run into different publication biases and a bunch of other stuff too. That that is a little crazy because I mean sometimes you want to know what not to waste your time on, you know. So you exactly. want to know you want to know the studies that don't have exactly the outcome you were going to have. Man, so this this is like going down the rabbit hole. It gets it gets just more and more yeah. complex. Let's go down another little rabbit hole. Lately, I saw another an article that said you know the inability to replicate studies. What is up? What is up with that? Yeah, most studies, I mean, the studies that have been done on study replication, it's, it's not as positive as what we would think, right? And again, I think that speaks to the amount of variables that can be in a study that either we didn't know about or didn't control. And didn't control mean that could be a conscious or an unconscious decision. Because at the end of the day, we're looking at science as what is a consensus, Right. Even if it's the world's best controlled study, it's still at the end of the day, just one study. Right. And we know that that may not be replicated. 
So until we have a fair amount of data, ideally that's been replicated with similar results, again, ideally from different labs, different groups of people, different funding sources, different biases, because um, everyone is, is a human and all humans are gonna have both conscious and unconscious biases. And of course, the process of science is we're trying to reduce those or get them to as low as we possibly can. But all science is still being done by humans, so it's just going to be a factor that we're going to have to deal with. Ideally, we can kind of limit that by doing replication of studies. So if we run the same study three times in a row, find the same result, okay, that's probably more of a quote-unquote real thing, or at least we were not able to disprove that thing. However, it's just not, at the end of the day, it's just not that sexy, right? So a lot of funding sources don't necessarily go to replication of studies. Um, journals want to always publish what's new and novel and sexy. Replication studies are probably neither of those. So even though everyone agrees that they're needed, that they are part of the scientific process, that we need to do more of it, just kind of the way the system is set up, it's not really rewarded for that. Right? If you're really trying to move up in an academic institution and all you did was replicate other people's work, I got a bad feeling that you may be kind of passed over a little bit. Not saying that's right. This is just my perception as an outsider compared to someone who designed some new fancy novel therapy for cancer or something. Holy crap, that sounds amazing. And of course, the reality is we need both. Right? You need people to do replication stuff that maybe is not novel and sexy. And of course, you need new and other things and people to think out of the box and try new stuff. So the answer is you need both. Got it. And again, that makes a, that makes a lot of sense that way. Um, Dr. Mike, one of the reasons we uh, brought you on here is because you are helping us to get the most relevant research out there to scholars. And that's what the Neuroscience Research Update uh, programs are putting out two a year. Uh, you're doing one and Dr. Kenneth J, another PhD, uh, brilliant colleague of ours, is uh, doing the other. We're really excited about them. What is the purpose of these modules? Well, why do the Carrick Institute uh, recruit you to, to make these? Yeah, so the purpose is, like we explained with the models, <clears throat> is we know that you know, a lot of people are super busy, might trying to even read a lot of the research may not be something that they were directly trained in. Some of them were, some of them may not have been. And even if they were, trying to keep up with the vast amount of literature is just really, really hard. And then as we mentioned, we've got different levels of evidence. And then when we did this, we still tried to put together different levels of evidence but we also wanted to keep an eye on trying to make things that are practical, right? So you're not gonna see all just randomized controlled trials on stuff that you know clinicians couldn't even begin to do in their practice. So we tried to do a blend of you know even some case reports in new areas where we just don't have a lot of randomized controlled trial data yet. So we're trying to show you that, hey, here's the study, here's how the study was done, Here's the pros and cons of this particular study, right? Because as we mentioned, by definition of doing one thing or looking at one particular thing, that means you couldn't look at another thing. That doesn't usually make it good or bad. It's just the limit of that one particular individual study. So you know kind of what the limits are of that study. 
And then we're also trying to gear it to be something that's more practical. So these are things that are kind of newer topics. Most of the research in this round is newer material. And a lot of it is from questions that we've had from different clinicians, even from different patients, you know, things that you may hear about in the media, which in my opinion is normally very biased one direction or the other. You don't have to argue about what direction, um, but actually going to the primary research of, okay, here's what was actually published. It was in a peer-reviewed journal. Here's the journal it's in. Here's the design of how it was done. And at the end of the day, here's what we know that may benefit your practice so that you have a better uh, update on some of the research that's going on, and then you can therefore make better clinical decisions based upon your update of that research. Awesome, so I mean, this is gonna be incredibly to, valuable to scholars. Um, Dr. Jessica, I think Dr. Jessica has a list of different topics that we're kind of covering. Uh, can you give us a little bit of a rundown in regards to what scholars are gonna be learning about? Uh, through Dr. Uh, Dr. Mike and Dr. KJ. Yeah, so we have a huge list of topics that we're going to be going over in these courses. And just some of them, you can find them all on the website uh, at NRU's page. But just to give you guys a little feed of what we're going to be doing, there's different things on mild traumatic brain inj injury and the management of concussion related to that. There's going to be stuff about aerobic exercise and sports-related concussion. You'll see some stuff about yoga and the effects that yoga has on brain health, stress and meditation practice. You'll see some non-invasive vagus nerve stimulation and how that relates to migraines. Uh, we talked a little bit already about creatine and depression. We're going to be talking a lot about the ketogenic diet. That's really popular right now. People asking about ketones. And then there's some stuff about heat therapy and saunas and using that for different dysautonomias oh, and I love, Alzheimer's. I love saunas. So there's a lot. <laughs> there's so much different variety in what um, these two doctors are going, going to be going over in these courses. And I mean, I'm interested to see all of this stuff because there's just so much on this list. Yeah. I, I do love the way you guys handpicked everything to make it applicable. And again, everything is going to be brought back to the application and why it matters to the clinicians. And I just imagine if, you know, if every single year the scholars who register for this are, they're going to be up to date on everything. They're going to know what they should be looking at. They're going to be know what they should already be doing. They should, they're going to learn maybe potentially what they should be avoiding. All of that is valuable. So, you know, I applaud you for taking on the project along with Dr. KJ. And uh, I mean, it's exciting, Mike. Uh, it's, it's, it's pretty, it's, it's, you know, it's badass is what it is, man. You're, you're helping out a lot of doctors. So we appreciate you appreciate you for it. And we appreciate you coming on the show today and giving us uh, like a quick primer on the values of research and how to navigate that, how to navigate the evidence-led practice. And, and again, for creating a resource to help us create better evidence-led practices as we work with all our patients. So we, you know, we appreciate you very much and, and appreciate you for coming on the show today. Yeah. Thank you very much for having me on here. And you know, honored to do these types of research reviews and to get the information out to more people, which is awesome. Excellent. I'm Dr. Mike, I'm sure it's not going to be the last time you'll be on this show because we always have so many amazing things to talk about. Uh, to everybody else who wants to learn more about the neuroscience research updates, again, we're going to have two every year. We do have some special topic ones coming out um, as well. So we, we actually, you know, we may have more than two a year, depending on all the feedback we're getting, but we've already, you know, we just launched it yesterday. We've already gotten lots of people registering and, and asking for specific, specific areas of research. So I think, I, I think what's going to happen is we're going to end up doing, you know, ones that are going to have very recent research, and then we're going to have one that covers a very specific topic. Uh, so for example, maybe we'll have one that covers just the latest research on concussion, because there's so much coming out on that. 
Um, or maybe we'll have our cover ones that covers just movement disorders or maybe even specifically one condition like Parkinson's. Cause I, I could imagine a, a use, uh, a use for that. So uh, if for those who want to learn more about it and register, just visit the website, carrickinstitute.com. Again, thank you very much, Dr. Mike, for coming on the, on the show. Dr. Jessica, thank you very much for hanging out and speaking with our great friend, Dr. Mike T. Nelson. To everybody else, we hope you enjoyed the show. We'll catch everybody next time. So long. If you enjoyed this podcast and would like to make any suggestions for any future podcast topics, please visit the Contact Us page on carrickinstitute.com.